John chapter 1. This is part 17 in our verse-by-verse series in the Gospel of John. And today's message is entitled, Christ, Grace, and Truth. Start reading in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And out of his fullness we all have received grace for grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Last week we looked primarily at verses 15 and 16, concentrating on this truth concerning the abundant grace of Christ, which flows from his fullness, which was mentioned in one of the previous verses, him being full of grace and truth. And basically, just to sum it up in one sentence, what the message was about last week, and it's on Sermon Audio if you want to hear it, but Christ, he is the never-ending fountain of these things for his people. Fountain of grace and truth. He just flows, because of his fullness, he flows out grace and truth abundantly to his people. His people to a certain essential measure do receive grace and truth. And I'd mentioned last week toward the end of the message that there is plenty there that we need to dive into, and it's there for the taking. It's sort of like a snooze-lose policy. If we neglect this grace, growing in it, promoting in it, loving it, teaching it, defending it, it's only to our detriment. There is enough there. There's plenty there, and there's no excuse to not just be swimming in it all the time. I think through your personal experience, maybe, you have seen the times when you have neglected having your mind being sober in thinking about these issues and being distracted, it will affect you. There's nothing like at the end of the week where I feel like I've been diving in it, and I feel like I've been used by God. That's that's where I feel value in life, that I am used of God to take this message and in its fullness give it to other people, and you might not get an immediate response from people. You might not ever get a response, and you, I can guarantee you that's that's going on, even with all of you that have dealt with other people. There might be positivity there, and you might not ever get a response, and that's not why you're doing it. But on down the road, it's pretty encouraging that you know that the same grace and truth that that you have received from the fullness of Christ, that you've given morsels to other people and they've just like lapped it up and said, you know, I took this and I've told these other people. And, you know, it just keeps multiplying. And you're thinking it's an encouragement for you to keep going yourself. And again, I don't, I personally, that's not my incentive to doing it, but it's just reciprocating, comes back. It works that way. It multiplies. 
Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. I want to read, there's a text I saw this week, which we're pretty familiar with, but I noticed that this text kind of sums up everything, starting in verse 13. It sums up everything so far that we've looked at in our text in John. It complements other scripture, but I mean, it says a lot of the same things. Colossians 1 and verse 13. For he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, remember the issue that we had. Light shined in the darkness. Darkness didn't comprehend it. Right here, this takes care of that, right? In whom, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the remission of sins. And here is a, the first line of verse 15 is a, is a line that has to do with a verse we're going to deal with probably in the next couple weeks. We haven't even got there yet. And it's kind of cool how that this text even matches something that's yet coming in a couple weeks. It matches it really good. Who is the image of the invisible God? Right? That matches verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. Spend a little bit of time on the invisibility of God and faith and, and how that's consistent and what that means. Kind of looking forward to that. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things were created by him, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, principalities. All things were created by him and for him, which, of course, matches the first few verses of chapter 1 of John. He is before all things. This is just what John just got done talking about in one of the previous verses. and here. He's before all things, both in time and preference. He's preferred before all things. We've got on the back wall there that in all things he might have preeminence. He's preferred. He's before all things in rank and preference. And, of course, in time. He's before time. He created time. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he may... Be preeminent in all things. For it pleased the Father that in him all what? Fullness should dwell. We've dealt with fullness in our text. And through him, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and that's the only way peace can be made, it's through the blood of the cross. It's the only way. The only way. It pleased the Father to reconcile all things unto himself through him, through Christ, whether the things are on earth, the things in heaven. And it gets personal here. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, blends with our text, talks about how we were in darkness. We couldn't understand. We couldn't comprehend. But God came in his power and he, by his spirit, birthed us so that we could receive him and have the authority to become sons of God. And now we're reconciled. Yet now he has reconciled. How did he do that? This matches in verse 20, saying the same thing. In his body of flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14 of our text. This is how he did it. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you three things. Holy, without blemish, without charge in his sight. <laughs> that verse right there is loaded with gospel principles. 
And those three things we don't affect. They're done outside of us. They're done by the sovereign grace of God out of his fullness. Effectually, he makes us holy without blemish and without charge in the sight of God. When we step to judgment, now as we approach the throne, we approach the throne with boldness because of these three things right here that were accomplished by the cross of Christ. And then it throws a a thing in here for us to pay attention to. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And this is a verse, and I've talked about it before, how the Armenians will say, look, there's an if there. Well, look, who in their right spiritual mind would move away from the hope of the gospel? The only person that would move away from the hope of the gospel, somebody that's not actually converted in the first place, they'll move away by something that they think that they're doing, which means they didn't understand the gospel in the first place. And these things about people moving and leaving and not coming back and and this is proof. You can go to other books of the Bible. And it says that they were not of us because they didn't continue with us. I think I say things clearer than anybody I know. And if I don't, I need to step it up and, and do it better. But when I talk, I don't want anybody walking out that door scratching their head and say, what did he say? I'm usually out on a limb on the other extreme, trying to be as nice as I can, but saying it as clear and in a gospel offensive way so that it's clear and to the point. No politically correct language. We can't afford it. We don't want to avoid the gospel by watering it down. But some people, it's weird. You think, man, I've, I, I've said it as clear as I can, and they seem to agree with it. And months down the road, it's like they just now figure out what you're saying. <laughs> See you later. You know, they leave. What am I going to do? Adjust my message so they'll come back? No. That was the purpose of God in saying it that way so that they would leave. So that's just the way God works. The gospel, it does two things. It either converts or it hardens. That's the purpose of the gospel. So those that preach the gospel, which should include all of you, when you preach the gospel in its clarity, it succeeds every time. The word does not go out void. It accomplishes that which God God sent it out for. So we can't fail. So that's telling us, get the gospel out. Don't worry about the success of it in numbers. It doesn't work that way. The success might be in hardening. Just do it as nice as you can. Do it as loving and as patient as you can. But don't compromise the message. Now, the the verse we're looking at today is the one that talks about here in our text. For the law was given by Moses. We could get crazy here and spend messages and messages and messages on this. And we we have talked about it before. And I'm glad uh, Andy read Galatians 3. That was way down in my notes. I don't think I'll get to it, but that was some of the comments that we're going to make about that chapter. But let's just briefly talk about some of the things about the law. And then if we get that far, we'll talk about how that grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ which we cover all the time. And we cover this too, but try to put it together with contrasts next to each other. Now, I know this, that everybody here knows this statement I'm about to make. 
We know that the law is not the gospel, and we know that the gospel is not the law. But we know the gospel is the law satisfied. We sang about it this morning. So that is that is our message. We won't say the gospel isn't just merely no law. The gospel is not the law. But we don't say the gospel means no law. We say the gospel means law satisfied. Law satisfied brings it into this person, Christ, what he did to save his people. Right? We know also that the law is from God and that it is good and pure. The problem is not the law. The problem is people. Right? We're the problem, not the law. Some of these little short verses, I'm just going to quote, won't have you turn there, but I do have a list and I tried to make it chronological so we wouldn't have to be jumping all over the place. You can go ahead and turn to Romans 2. So we're going to be looking at that. But I'm going to give you a uh, verse out of Romans 7. Just one verse. And I have other notes on Romans 7 further down. I don't know if I'll get that far. But Romans 7, 12 says, So indeed the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So again, it's not the law's fault. We don't hate the law. We hate our flesh. Or at least we should. And I'll tell you about somebody, I, a conversation I had with a friend of Calvin's, my son. And he wanted to talk some theology out in the garage. It was like uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he said, Mr. Price, uh, tell me, I, I don't understand. These nice people that didn't harm anybody. They're just like good-hearted people, innocent people that are nice Muslims. They're moral and Mormons. He, he named three or four different different religions. He said, do they have any hope? I mean, are they are they condemned? Believing what if they die, believing what they believe. And I said, yeah, they are lawbreakers. They are in unbelief. They reject Christ. They are either ignorant of or not submitted to the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. I mean, I could have gone on for a long time. And so the focus in men is this thing about chance. They don't have a chance. So let's sympathize with them. I, I sympathize with them. I was there. And God, by his mercy, pulled us out. So that's not the point. But somehow I brought it back to justice. What does justice say? If they're a lawbreaker and they don't have a covering for that, name it. I don't care. Name who they are, what they look like, what they've done. doesn't matter. Universally, that's the standard. They don't make it. That's just the way it is. That's, that's the way God is. And God is unchangeable in reference to his own character and standard in that judgment. So, again, come back to the issue of compromise. As ugly as people think that looks and tries to bring an emotional argument out of it, and even if there's people around, can you can you believe this guy? He says that all these, you know, you've been there before where they try to make you look like, you mean you serve a God that would do that? Yeah, I can show you all over the scripture. And then I would like to see your answer because you're going to be embarrassed when the clarity of the scripture, and that's not my job to embarrass them, but you have to get people's attention and show them. Can you read English? Here it is. Not being inspired, like, but look, here it is. How do you get out of this? And then usually they, the next step, I don't know, name calling? I don't know. 
slinging something and running away. I don't know, cussing. I don't know. I've seen it. I've seen all that. But <laughs> this is basic. This is very, very, very basic. That the standard of judgment is the law. And we have already been judged by the law in Christ. So now our standard has shifted to the gospel, the standard of the gospel. And we're protected under that gospel. And that's what that text says in Colossians we just read. If you continue in the faith, that, I mean, that's self-protecting. Sure, I'm going to continue in faith. Why would I go back to the standard of the law? That's ridiculous. We know that a law was given to Adam, even before Moses. There was a law given to Adam. Speaking of that fruit that God forbid them to eat, the day you eat there, you shall surely die. There was a threat issued. There's not a promise of life. There was a threat issued for transgressing that law. And that's exactly what they did. And Adam broke that law and plunged the whole human race into sin, legally and spiritually. They were placed into death. He ate and died. That meant we ate and died in our representative Adam. So all after Adam were given the law in their conscience. There was an impartation of a conscience given to man which uh, we're going to read here in a minute in Romans 2. That's why I mentioned that text there. Which, that law of conscience, we were constantly, before conversion, we were constantly violating that law. And everybody that doesn't even believe the gospel, that has a conscience, they're violating their conscience all the time. Making themselves guilty. And they feel it. Now look at Romans 2.13. That's where uh, I want us to look at. It's talking about the conscience here. And here's a principle that is that is true. Get this principle down. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just or justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. I know there's difference of opinions, even among gospel preachers and theologians, of how God's people are made to be doers of the law. But either way you look at it, nobody that's a gospel preacher will say it's anything to do with us. It's how that Christ does it to make us be doers of the law. And I say that, and just quickly, some say that it's his death only, and some say that it is his law-keeping and his death combined as one work to make us doers of the law. I agree with the second. Verse 14. For when the nations do not have the law, they do by nature the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and the thoughts between one another. And what do they do? What happens? Accusing or even excusing one another. So that's what the conscience does. You don't need the law and tablets of stone to make you guilty because God has imparted the conscience. When the conscience exercises itself from day to day, the sinner is posed with a temptation. He enters into that temptation and transgresses the law. It's interpreted by his conscience. And his conscience being the way it is, it's actually a curse in itself because 
it can't teach us the way the gospel does that the remedy is in Christ alone. Because, number one, the conscience is disturbing us and we can never get rid of that guilt and that burden. It just keeps going until it's cleansed by the gospel. And what it does is when it feels guilty, it'll cue somebody else to get that guilt over that way. Or it'll excuse oneself to say it's not that big of a deal. Or even it'll excuse one of their friends so they can be on the same team, so you can be sympathetic. Hey, we've got this lowered standard. Yeah, we seem to agree. We can kind of protect each other. There's all kind of craziness that goes on with the deception of the mind and religion to go about to establish a righteousness of your own. The most deceiving sin, of course, is self-righteousness, and the conscience is used by Satan himself to affect the self-righteousness. It's a trap that you cannot get out of until the gospel explodes these ideas by its power. So the conscience is there, and it's because a law was broken, the first law. Verse 16, And in a day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Behold, you're called a Jew, and you, look, look at this language, you rest in the law. He's telling these Jews that they are, their faith, they're leaning on, they're trusting in them doing the law. Christ is our rest. He's our Sabbath. But here, these people were resting in the law. And on top of it, they were like resting in the law, but they would boast in God. Like, I'm on God's team, but it's me keeping the law. Verse 18, And know his will and approve the things excelling, being instructed out of the law, and persuading yourselves to be a guide of the blind and a light to those in darkness. And that kind of matches our text, right? In John, talking about how we were in darkness. The light shined in darkness. We didn't understand it until or unless God opens our eyes to reveal the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But here these people are blind, and they consider themselves instructors, teachers. And that's what those guys like. You know, they like to... People would come up to him in the streets and say, Rabbi, so proud of you, you got your doctorate. And they had all their little fancy clothes on and they had the chief seats they sat in. They wanted to be the go-to guy for the law. Hey, I got this technical question on the law. The other day, you know, sometimes they don't even care about the answer. They're just boosting up this person. And this person, of course, his head's going, swelling up. That's the way religious people are. That's what they want. And they'll tell, did you hear that question that guy asked me today? I gave him a good answer, didn't I? You know what I'm saying? It's just ridiculous. You see that in religion today. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes who have the form of knowledge and the form of the truth in the law. But Paul kind of turns around here and he says, therefore, verse 21, the one teaching another, do you not teach yourself? The one preaching not to steal, do you steal? The one saying not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? The one detesting idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He's saying, you guys claim to be honoring God. Is this the way you do it? Are you doing it by, because you're obviously breaking the law. Is this your technique? 
that's genius, Paul says. You know, he's being smart aleck. He's tearing into them, showing them they don't keep the law. They can't. He Later on, he says they can't. You know, and we'll see some of that. I hope we'll get that far. For the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you, as it is written in the Old Testament. That was prophesied that that's what these people do. So later, the law, we had talked about the law of the conscience, the law that Adam was given. The law later came in the form of the Ten Commandments given by Moses. And that's what our text is talking about in John. And it pointed out man's duty to God, four commandments dealing with God, and six dealing with people or your neighbor, which is everybody. And we know that the law and all that came with it in that system which would be the ceremonies and the penalties, was put in place temporarily. Now, this was God's purpose. It was put in place temporarily to show that in the form of a works or conditional fashion, it could not be kept. That's the purpose of it. God says, okay, his chief plan, which he knew from eternity because he loved and chose his people, his chief plan was going to be the new covenant and Christ's blood of the new covenant. But he wanted to put this plan in place to show in so many different ways that you can't do this. Now, what religion does today is they see that system and they say, I can do this. Right? Well, what happened when Moses was up getting the law? I don't know how long he was up there. I don't know when they started the idea, hey, let's do this. Let's melt some gold down and make a calf. Probably pretty quick, but they were saying, hey, where's he at? I mean, he's, he's been gone, and he came back, and they were doing this idolatry already. You know, before he went up there, he says, I'm going to go up and get the law, and I'm going to get some stuff from God and come back. And they said, get it. We'll do it. Sign me up. We'll do whatever it takes to whatever he says for us to do. We'll do that and more. <laughs> well, they were doing more, all right. They were worshiping a stupid calf that they made out of their wicked minds. But it was a temporary thing, this system put in place. And it was conditional, and it had to do with works. Andy read it in Galatians 3.10 that it was, a, it was a something that was a system of a curse because it had to be done all the time perfectly. In a nutshell, that's it. It had to be done all the time perfectly. So that showed us there that there was a need for something better. When we see that system that man couldn't keep, we automatically should see we need something better than this because this ain't working. It's not working because there's something wrong with it. Something wrong with me. I need something that will work for me. And the only difference between the law not working and some other form of New Testament doctrine, false religion I'm talking about here, New Testament doctrine, they'll say, I can't work with this law. And they'll shift over here. And they'll, they'll do the work over here. It's a new, subtle system. Well, I know I can't keep the law. Therefore, by my free will, I'm going to believe and get born again. It's just a new, different set of laws over here. That's a deception. Because why? Their conscience is bugging them. And God has not cleansed their conscience by the gospel and pointed to law satisfied. So we need a better, a permanent, thus grace. In other words, unconditional system in place. And this system has to be headed up by Christ, right? Who is what? Full of grace and truth. Being a work of him for us, not us for him. 
you know, that's that's the two contrasts, true religion and false religion. Him will work for us, us will work for him, right? This is another way of saying it. The problem with the law as a system to be a conditional way to gain favor with God, it's evident it just wouldn't work, as I said, because of people. People, after the fall, they just didn't have it in them. Scripture says that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It can't be. It's because it's a curse. It's a system that's a curse because you've got to keep it all the time, every time, continually. The law, the purpose of it, and we'll see here in a minute in Romans 3, it shows sin, it accuses us of sin, and it condemns us for sin. Sin is transgression of the law. The law, that system, it doesn't give us any strength to perform its demands. There's nothing in the law that gives us strength to perform what the law demands from us. You know, when we talk to conditionalists or Arminians, we talk about the gospel, and maybe it's explained that because man is dead and his trespasses and sins, he can't believe the gospel. He can't understand the gospel. There is none that seeketh after God. And they hear that, and they say, with their bent logic, they say, well, that, 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 no, that doesn't make sense, because why would God demand that from somebody that couldn't do it? Well, we shift over to the law, and we give the same scenario. We might ask them. Sometimes people aren't sharp enough to make that three-second transition. You say, okay, does God require people that are of, of the mind to understand at least? You, know, and you start a little bit further out. Let's talk about adults. People always want to talk about kids and dinosaurs and aliens and stuff. We're talking about adults. Does God require them to obey the law, and will they be judged for breaking the law? And if they're at judgment and they get sent to hell, is it because they are sinners and they've broken the law? Well, yeah. And you go right into it. They can't keep the law. They don't have it in them. It's the same, same idea as they can't believe the gospel. False religion, again, creeps in. says, okay, I agree with you. Now, I believe regeneration precedes faith, and now we have faith, and God has now enabled us to keep the law. And now God accepts us on the ground of us working out our personal holiness in the law. You see, there's another, there's another avenue. Christ is the door. He's the shepherd. Thieves and robbers have climbed in another way. That's the way of theft right there. Thieving the glory of God and salvation. The law does not have a hint at all of forgiveness. Right? Go to Romans 3. We'll look at some things here about the law. We're running out of time. This might be the last section here. Let's stop. Romans 3.19. He kind of repeats some ideas in chapter 2, but let's look here. But we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be under the judgment before God. Because by the works of the law, none of all flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. That means from you yourself doing the law. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You know, people are so blind, and, and we were too, that taking the Old Testament, and we know what Christ said about the Old Testament. He said, Moses wrote of me. He said, you believe in Abraham. Abraham believed on me. He saw my day, and he was glad. And all the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Everything was about Christ. When Christ was walking on the on the road there with those few people didn't recognize who he was, he said he sat down, he opened up the scriptures, and he testified all the things starting in Moses through the prophets concerning him, what he did in redemption. That's what it's saying here. All the prophets, the law and the prophets testified to this same New Testament truth that Paul's telling us that you can't be saved by the law, and this one that was to come was going to fulfill this law and save his people by satisfying the law for them. The gospel's in the Old Testament, in other words. So these people in this works system, most of them didn't see it. There was only a remnant. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ toward all and upon all those who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, they don't meet the standard of the perfection of Christ. Christ is the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that's satisfaction of law and justice, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness through the passing by of the sins that had taken place before in the forbearance of God. For the display of his righteousness at this time, for him to be just and the justifier of those placing their faith in Christ. So God, when he justifies, he does it in a just way that matches his justice because his son has done the work to relieve his people from the penalty of sin. Now he can justly, faithfully, righteously, holy say, you are forgiven, your sins are paid for, not by you, but by another, my son, that I sent to do this work for you. That's propitiation. Wrath and justice is satisfied. This is the gospel that the Old Testament testified of, the law and the prophets. This is what the apostles preached from the Old Testament of course, now we have the details of it in the New Testament, which we have a clearer testimony that we can use to preach to people nowadays. But the problems are the same. Historically, the problems are the same from all the way back. You still hear the same garbage from natural self-righteous sinners. Same thing we said years ago when we didn't know any better. All the problems, there's nothing new. Anybody, anything anybody says, it's just it's it's been repeated millions of times by other sinners that are in darkness. Verse 27, then where is boasting? Where, where you got space to brag? You don't. It's excluded. If salvation is this way, your bragging is excluded. Right? What what Paul say in Philippians 3? We have no confidence in the flesh. We don't have any place. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14. It's excluded. Through what law? Law of works? No. Through the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude. If, I mean, if he hadn't said it already. We conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Verse 31. Do we then make 
avoid the law through faith? Let it not be. God forbid. But we establish the law. I just want to end on this point here, this last verse. This is what I said earlier. That the law is not the gospel. The gospel is not the law. But the gospel is law satisfied. That statement, the gospel is the law satisfied, which is talked about in verses 24 through 26. That's what we just read. How that Christ accomplished salvation for his people by satisfying the law. Enabling God to be just when he justifies because law is satisfied for those people. We look here and it says, so are we antinomians? Are we against the law? That's what, that's what he's asking. Do we make void the law? Uh, are we haters of the law? No. Now that we believe the gospel, this is the very thing that establishes the law in its proper place. Right? Think about the best person with his best efforts that have ever lived. You know, Paul talked about it. He was, he was pretty far up there. In Philippians 3, he named all the stuff and he thought that he was keeping the law. He said he was blameless. And he, he named his pedigree and all these different things, all these things he did. He excelled over everybody else. And he, he said, it. that's crap. That's what he said. I'd say another word, but I'd have to edit it out. But you get the picture. One time I was dealing with this youth group one time at a church. Surprised this guy even let me teach, but he's talking about self-righteousness and like open air. It's like a youth group thing. And I had this reminiscent memory of, I was always, I still have a tendency to go barefoot everywhere at home, especially. I just like to be barefoot. But out in the yard, and we had dogs, people had dogs and stuff, in the hot summertime, stepping in some dog crap and it going up through your toes, right? And it wasn't hard. It was that kind that went up through your toes, up to the top, and you're like, you're limping to go to the hose, and you feel, Dad always say, boy, you need to cut your foot off. I mean, it was, you don't want that. And Paul's saying, that's what you're doing. You're like taking trap. And you're putting it up to God's nose and saying, what do you think? Do you like this? It's good, isn't it? Or, like Isaiah said, minstrel rags. Put both up there. You know, that's what our righteousness is. Minstrel rags and crap. Neither one we want to be anywhere near. It should be flushed and disposed of, and it's not something to boast about. Right? That's the point. So we look to the law and we think, okay, God is holy, he's righteous, he's just, he doesn't change. He demands perfection all the time, every time. The only one that can do that is Christ. He comes and he does it not only in his life, but in the penalty of it in his death. And we look at that flawless record. That is the record that we are accepted by to be justified. And when God shows us that, we say, I'm not competing with that. <laughs> No way. <laughs> Perfection. It is finished. We see that and we, we worship God through that idea, through that truth, the one that did this. He is called the Lord our righteousness. So God forbid us, glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his cross. And I'm crucified to everybody else, every other fool in the world that I used to be a part of. That says, I hate that and I hate you for liking that. I'm crucified to them and they're to me. 
there's people that are against what we say that are nice people, maybe even better people than us. Probably so. If I mean, if you're honest, you would say that. You know what's in your heart. I mean, I'm a sinner. The people that are blind to this truth that I'm talking about, about satisfaction, law, and justice, many of those people are better people than we are. But God has chosen to show mercy on us. And it's unobligated. He doesn't have to. And that's a good part about it. You know, I've dealt with people before, maybe some in this room, uh, on both sides of this issue where you want to give somebody something. And they, you know how we are as human beings. We're like, I don't like to be obligated to anybody, first of all. I don't want to owe anybody anything. And somebody says, uh, do you want this? Or here, take this. Or I'll buy this for you. I'm thinking, uh, you know, because I'm I'm weird about being obligated and selfish. I know some down somewhere down the road, I'm going to feel obligated, and that's going to screw up my motive too. I just know our motives are all messed up, and I don't want anything added to a weird idea about, I guess i got to buy his dinner this time. He bought mine last time. Oh, that's stupid. You know? I wish that wasn't even in our heads. But that's the way we are. And because we're spiritually messed up, you know, of, of, or physically about money, it enters into the, our ideas of, you know, tit for tat, we try to even the playing field. But you know what? I've given things to people before, and they say, you don't have to do that. I say, you know what? I don't. That's what makes it all better, doesn't it? And it clicks. Yeah, that's it. You didn't have to give it to me. And then you talk about Christ as the Savior, the Father as the one electing. The Father did not have to elect. He is not obligated to elect. That's the point. You need to stress that election and his love is unobligated. When you put an obligation on it, you've canceled out the definition and it's become a lie. And when people can get that intellectual idea about, even before they're converted, you can make them think further down the line. And they'll think, I've talked to people before that haven't been converted, and you tell them that, and they, they do get an intellectual grip on that. Doesn't mean they're going to be, a, you know, their offense is not going to go away some down the line, somewhere down the line. If God saves them, everything would be okay. But if you can convince them of that through the scripture, of course, you'll get them to think, I guess that I, that makes sense. I've heard a lot of people say that about some of the stuff I've said. That makes sense. I have a, a relative that is an atheist. And I was corresponding with him a little bit. Of course, he's not converted. But he said, you know, if uh, I was forced to pick a religion, I would pick Scott's because it makes the most sense. Well, he hasn't picked, else he would be here. There's some offense there that's stopping him, and it's his own righteousness. He doesn't see that he is sick and needed a physician. But at least all the BS that's out there, we have, in a practical way, cut through all that and presented it in such a way that you know, we're not ripping people off with money, right? You don't have to wear a tie to come to church. I mean, you, well, I could list a bunch of stuff that would eliminate peace, people's excuses for not coming to this church. We don't have an altar call and call people down and pressure people. We don't pass, pass an offering plate, on and on and on. And, and that starts clicking with people. Hey, you know, because you start eliminating their excuses to not come to church. And then even you get into... Free will and predestination. 
and you explain in detail maybe other things that people would not explain. And you're, we should be good at, at detecting misconceptions. If you've had misconceptions of your own, you should be tender to that idea and say, okay, when I'm talking to this person, I need to watch out. Maybe they're misconceiving something. So I need to zero in on, well, let me fix this for you so that you don't think I'm saying what maybe what this other guy that claims to believe what I believe is saying. And you kind of straighten that out. Andy, we've talked about that recently. We've, we've seen that. But there are a lot of misconceptions out there, and we should step forward and clear those up and, and, I don't know the word, disidentify with those other groups. We're not like them. Here's what we believe. So it's your responsibility to be able to explain what you believe, be able to understand and explain what you believe. But we don't make void the law through faith. We establish it because we believe law satisfied. I'll stop there. Questions, comments? Which, uh, which laws that existed from Adam and Moses that caused people to die? Was the Jews? <clears throat> what law is that? Is the law of the belief fruit? Or the third law? Well, I'm, I know for sure the law of the conscience was intact. But yeah, the, a lot of people want to say because the law of Moses wasn't right there after Adam fell, then people are okay, but you quoted the verse that matters. In Romans 5, it said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, which meant there was some kind of law in place. Now, that first law of Adam breaking the law, of course we know, was transferred to everybody else. We know it transferred in a way of death there by legally imputation and moral spiritually by moral corruption and inability. But also added to that was the implantation of the conscience through that time period. And people were more than likely judged off of that standard, which you would think would be just as high as the written law because what we read in Romans 2 um, even if it's not as high, death is death, right? We could talk about levels of death and levels of accountability, but death is death. Some people want to hold to some decalogue and say that it didn't come right after Adam, therefore people just physically died, but they weren't accountable like they were after the law. And they talk about how that those People were judged under a different standard. And uh, there's all kinds of theories about Romans 5. I've heard some say that it's talking about there how that Christ paid the penalty for everybody for Adam's sin imputed. I don't know where they get that out of that chapter, but that's the chapter they try to use for that. What about where uh, said times past where they were doing? I'll worship or something like that, but God kind of nodded at it, winked at it, you know, like, it hadn't been revealed with him yet. Yeah. I think the language there is talking about, uh, it's Timothy or something like that, I can't remember. Yeah, like times past. Right. I'd have to look at that to give you a concrete answer, but I know this, that I know there's a comparison of a progressive revelation of scripture over time, the history of time. 
And now the clarity has been jacked up, so the accountability is jacked up. You know, and, and just the opposite for people nowadays, when you hear them talk about, they talk about this old mean uh, Old Testament God, that old mean God back there. You know, he was rough. He'd kill homosexuals and he did this, that and the other. And people get stoned for this. And now here comes the hippie Jesus, the blue eyed dude. And he's all cool and calm and just sad. Let it go. Let it slide. They almost have the wink at thing. The newer one. But if you read like, uh, for example, Thessalonians, one of the first or second Thessalonians, it says that Christ is going to come back with flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and believe not his gospel. And you go to Hebrews, and it compares, and this is the clearest part. I believe it's uh, 12, maybe, or 13, I can't remember. 12, I think, where it says, back then, when he spoke, he shook the earth. It talked about Mount Sinai, how scary it was. The lightning, the smoke, God's voice. If a beast touched it, it should be thrust through with a dart because it's holy ground. Now he says we've moved into Zion. And it talks about the New Testament time period. And it says it's not going to be easier. It's tougher. And you read that and it talks about in the end, he shall not only shake the earth, but he will shake heaven and earth. And the only thing that will remain are the things that are not seen. Eternal, spiritual things. The things that are things we look at by faith, which is really the words of God, right? It says in uh, Peter, which is a requote from the Old Testament, that his, his word won't pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. And that's what he's talking about. He's going to remove heaven and earth by his shout. Kind of makes you think oh, he's going to descend with a shout. Put all that together. I mean, I don't believe in that dispensational garbage where there's this little time period of seven years, thousand years. And I think he's coming back. He's going to shout. He's going to burn it up. And it's done. I don't know what you call that eschatology-wise, but that's that's my eschatology. I don't know. Where there's not like they they look at the thousand years of Christ reign as not endless. Starts, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think thousand years is a typical language right. that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? You've heard that verse? Well, is, is that all? The thousand and one is the devils. See what I mean? He owns them all. So it's a, it's just a large number. And I had read, you were getting ready to read Ephesians 1 for your scripture reading. Maybe today read that if you haven't heard me read it lately, but I've kind of, kind of really burned it up lately. But it talks about how that, we believe by the same power that Christ was raised from the dead, and it says after that that what God did with Christ in his exaltation, the place that he put him, he exalted him higher than, than any other place, height-wise, in rank and honor, than any other place ever in the history of the world that ever will be in the worlds to come. And if he was to step down off of that throne and go to Jerusalem where they, he sits on the throne of David, I, I think Ephesians 1 denies that. See what I mean? But I think Second Peter 3, 9 talks about that uh, he, he's going to come. I can't remember all the language there, but the earth's going to burn with a fervent heat. I mean, I think that's immediately. Yeah, all, all, all the mountains. Yeah. All the way and he's not willing that any should perish. It's that section there. And then other texts, too, you could pick from. And I mean, flat out, dispensationalism is a lie. 